leg time. We'll start with bad, then we'll go good. I prefer, always prefer to end with good. So being an intersex person, people don't usually understand what intersex is all about. My art practice has been exploring the intersection of being Aboriginal and queer. Our community, again, respecting our elders enough to fight for it, and that's pretty bestest. Best Day, Worst Day is a podcast where I get to know a bit more about some of the LGBTIQA plus artists and activists I've been really inspired by. I ask them to tell me about a good time they've had and a bad time they've had, and what, if anything, they've learned from those experiences. Their answers have always been fascinating. Just being able to make someone that happy to show that much love, that was that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. This is the first time in a very long time that we won. Who's doing anything in this era? This peer support project is supported by the Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, Vic Health, and a proud part of Brimbank City Council's Work for Victoria Artists in Residency. This project touches on many topics like suicide, loss of loved ones, poor mental health, and experiences of hospitalisation. I don't know whether to call it major breakdown. Maybe that's the worst. <laughs> for a whole year, I was in terrible grief, and I did a lot of advocacy from that grief. Best Day, Worst Day, a podcast made in NAM on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Best Day, Worst Day. I'm your host, Sam Elkin. I'm a transmasculine writer, event producer and radio maker living in NAM. For today's episode, I interviewed Creatrix Tiara, who is a creative producer, writer and performance artist who's interested in exploring liminality, community and identity through the perspective of a queer and genderqueer immigrant disabled femme of colour. Creatrix Tiara, they them currently based in Melbourne. I usually get up to shenanigans. The shenanigans are low on the ground right now <laughs> because of everything. But a lot of things to do with the arts, community, creative industries, anything around that nature. I recently produced a fringe festival on the video game Animal Crossing New Horizons. I also have a stage magic and storytelling project called Queer Lady Magician, which is a queer feminist anti-racist take on stage magic. Also worked with Quipping, Sequid Disabled, Performance Art Collective, and various other projects. I haven't really been doing much, but I do watch a lot of YouTube right now. So there's this video game series called Danganronpa, which is basically Battle Royale meets Ace Attorney. Bunch of teenagers are in trapping a school together and they have to murder to survive, but also there's a trial to figure out who the murderer is. And so the rabbit hole has just been like videos around that and like fans making their own version of the game. And it's just mainly what I've been spending my YouTube time on. This fan fan projects of a Japanese video game. I've somehow become gamer girl in the last few years. You know, I I ran a Finch festival on a video game last year. But yeah, I've also I've been involved with the games industry one way or another over the last like five or six years, mostly in terms of community engagement. I was volunteer manager for the Free Play Independent Games Festival for a couple of years, made a couple of games myself, and. Yeah, it's like gaming culture, largely. I love the Ace Attorney series. You had to pick one, that's probably that. Ace Attorney is 
a visual novel style game where you're basically a lawyer game. So you play a defense lawyer, Phoenix Wright, who has defense people who've been falsely accused of murder half the time. And so you investigate the case and then once you get your evidence, you fight it out in court and there's a big deal about contradiction so like the prosecution will say something or your witness will say something and they're like no that's incorrect objection you know so it's like a lot of yeah it's sort of the, the you play a defense lawyer if you defend your clients from being falsely accused it's like half detective half logic i love lawyer games that genre of game is really interesting to me it's a very small genre it's like just maybe like four or five games that fall into so you know it's like an investigation game but like one of the core parts of the gameplay is convincing the other person of your point of view or pointing out their mistakes. So it's not just, oh, look, I found the murder weapon. So you kind of have to prove that, yes, this is the murder weapon. The other person is lying. That's kind of what I what I like about it. I mean, it's, it's one thing to play a lawyer in a video game. It's another thing to actually be in a trapped of law and where most of your cases are probably like, all right, here's a very basic paperwork thing. Right, cool. Yeah, I don't know that I want to do a whole law degree, but <laughs> but who knows? If I discovered the game when I was younger, maybe. But right now, right now, I'm just more contented being a fictional lawyer rather than a real one. Although I am trying to write my own like mystery stories and my own detective investigation games or stories like that. So in that way, that's probably where some of those skills are coming in. And I've always wanted to write a murder mystery game. So. You know, like one of those like party ones where everyone's in a room and you're all given roles and you act out the murder mystery. I've also wanted to write one of those. So this is like in that same vein, worst day, but it, just, it was more chaos than anything. So here it is, a true tale of one of Tiara's worst days. Last year, I was on a tour in the US with a group called Sisters Fit, which is a queer people of color performance art and spoken word tour. And, you know, I was like the one international guest. And this was just before COVID was like a big deal. And even as I was going, you know, it was a little discussion of like, should I go? Will the borders close? You know, with the information I had at the time, I was like, okay, I can risk going. Probably make it back in time, you know, before borders start shutting down and stuff. That whole trip was chaos. The tour itself, the performance itself was great. Everything before and after was a bit of a nightmare. Like, it started with me flying in and getting detained at Los Angeles airport for two hours. And I've been flying ever since I was a baby. And so I've never been detained, ne- ne- never ever come close, even though I've had to deal with so many weird visa shenanigans. But I got detained for two hours. It seemed to be possibly a dispute over, is it a work visa or not? Like, there was some question about it, but... You know, get detained, can't contact anyone, and they wouldn't let me out until I performed spoken word for them. <laughs> so I just like came off this flight for like twelve something hours, and like being hassled by immigration authorities in Los Angeles airport, and like perform for us, huh? You say you're a spoken word artist, perform something. So I just rattle something off the top of my head, and then they let me go. And <laughs> Yeah, and then it's probably some level of harassment, like, you know, like, I, they said, like, the, the guy who was asking me was like, oh, I like spoken word. I'm like, sure you do. You're just trying to needle at me, so I doubt him. But, you know, I'm already, like, freaked out, jet lagged, didn't know what was going to happen. I was surprised I was let go. This is a spit tour. We went to different spots 
So Sissy has been around for a few decades, starting off as an all-woman feminist tour, basically, mostly spoken words. So in, in the last few years, it's been an all-people-of-color production, and also they've opened it across genders, so not just a cis woman. So a group of us are about, I want to say like eight or so, performed at different spots in the U.S. West Coast. I brought my queer lady magician show with me. So I did a mini version of my stage magic and storytelling show. And I did a few pieces from there. We had one person who was a performance poet specifically. And then a few other people, you know, were more conventional. Conventional as you can get being a queer person of color. But like, you know, more like traditional poets. So did readings from their work, sharing our work about our lives, our identities, whatever mattered to us and getting to connect with audiences that were often other queer folk, other people of color. At one point, we performed at a university as part of their, I think their Multicultural Students Association or something along those lines. And then we had like a great chat afterwards. So yeah, the shows we did get to do, they were like very affirming. I just wish that tour would have happened independently of all the other stuff (laughs) around it. The tour went mostly as planned, but then we had to stop halfway because lockdowns were happening both in the US and back here. We decided like for everyone's safety, we're just going to like cut tour short. So we cut tour halfway. And then I remember it was so distinctly. We were flying back from Portland, somewhere in Oregon. Our group took a flight back together to Oakland because that's where we started. And there was something about the flight that felt like I entered another dimension because suddenly I was trying, I was supposed to stay in a friend, the friend's family owned a hotel, supposed to stay with them until I flew home to Melbourne. But that fell through while I was on the flight. And so like a bunch of us were trying to figure out accommodation for me while I was in the flight. And then it was just chaos of having like change all my flight. Cause I was supposed to be like in the US for another week. I was like, no, having to change my flights back home multiple times. And at one point I was like, okay, we've booked to fly from San Francisco to Los Angeles this date and then fly out to Melbourne. So it's supposed to be the same day. So the day before I was supposed to fly out to LA and start my flight home, San Francisco declares a shelter in place order. <laughs> so which is like which is like a lockdown, but slightly different but similar idea. I was like, oh God, how am I am I going to be able to leave? And theoretically I could have made my flight anyway, because they weren't like blocking flights from going. But I was so freaked out. I was like, we have, I do not want to be stuck here and miss my flight out from the country. So a friend helped me get to the airport. I asked the airline. The airline said, you could probably still go, but if you want to fly tonight, we can change your flight for you for free. So I like, oh, thank Christ. Okay. So I got all my stuff from this other hotel. Red rushed to L- well, the airports, got on the plane to LA like that evening. It was so everyone's in mass and they'd like already emptied out the middle seat. There's like take aisle or window. You know, it was very kind of regimented already. And try spending the night at an airport hotel. And then, you know, getting the next day, just waiting to check in to my flight back to Melbourne. That was the same day. Scott Morrison does his press conference saying, Hey, Australians, if you are overseas, you might want to come back now. <laughs> Please don't close the border. I'm so close. Don't cancel the flight. So, you know, thankfully the flight wasn't canceled, but it was super full, right? Super, super full. I'm also trying to organize like a therapist appointment, which means you're getting a mental health care plan. So my GP in Melbourne is calling me. I'm changing like SIM card so she can call me so we can do a mental health care plan in the middle of the airport. And get on the flight is super full. I had upgraded to premium economy because I knew it was going to be my last future comfort for a while. 
And it was so surreal. I get on this flight, sitting in premium economy. So like not quite business class, but still like fancy. And get on the plane. The pilot goes, hello, welcome to the last virgin Australia flight before we shut down all international operations due to COVID-19. <laughs> I just felt like I was on the Titanic. Like, as I, I would be surprised if I managed to, like, display a lamps at all at this point. It was so hectic. And we made it. But I remember we were all waiting to get off the plane. And all of us in line were just sharing, like, war stories. Like, one other person was talking about how they were there because their daughter had a netball competition or something. And they had to rush back. Someone else was talking about, like, a family friend stuck in Taz. So, you know, it was just every, we could see just everyone's panic of, we need to get home now, especially when we found out this was the last flight. So yeah, went from there, long lines getting through. This was, had to take an Uber straight home. A friend was going to come pick me up, but they weren't allowed to because I had to go to, to quarantine. And this was just before they did the hotel quarantine. So I had to go straight to my apartment, but my only option was an Uber. So, you know, take the Uber, very quiet Uber, all the way home for two weeks of a very honestly very traumatizing quarantine but yeah it was just such such chaos such chaos at the same time i was in the states my sister and my dad were on a trip to antarctica on this cruise and you know my mom was in the uk because that's where my sister lives and she was babysitting you know her granddaughter and so they at the same time i was rushing back home my family were also getting the last flight on the boat to antarctica last flight out of argentina to the UK because they were blocking flights. No one wanted to fly to Europe because there was a big outbreak. They all got the last flight. And then like my parents having negotiate flights to come back to Malaysia because again, no one was taking flights from the UK at that time. So yeah, it was not my sister trying to have a birthday while everyone is in chaos trying to get home. So the date sticks out. And I've actually been trying to find other people that have was on the same flight as me. I found one person by accident. But I've been trying to find other people that were on this one specific VA-224 flight. And I'm also trying to pitch to Virgin Australia about doing a performance piece about that flight. It was just like such a hallmark moment. Like, you know, it was the last Virgin Australia flight because of the pandemic. So full. Everyone's got stories. Virgin, if you're listening, got a pitch for an art piece. Talk to me. Was it the worst? I mean, at the time, there was still a debate about the mask. I remember being very frustrated at this because I was always leaning to pro-mask. But this was at the time where people, even health officials, were thinking masks were a bad idea. They're like, there's no evidence that it helps. It might make things worse because you're always touching your face. And there was also this wave of like anti-Asian racism where Asians were getting attacked for wearing masks. Even though in Asia, it's very common to wear a mask for whatever flu outbreak that happens, right? But I remember like we just had, I had, I actually brought all of this mask with me because we just had the bushfires. So like, all right, I have this stack left over from when you had to wear masks because of the smoke. But I was too scared to wear it in the US because I didn't want to get attacked for being obviously Asian wearing a mask. But I did wear one on the flight to LA getting home, but LA to Melbourne, I don't think any of us really wore our masks. It was like a 12-hour flight, very full, and probably that's why they had to shut down operations because it would have been too risky. And especially after I found out like there were other flights on a similar route where there had been outbreaks. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if we actually pushed for the mask way earlier. Like I remember it being a hassle for me to get tested because I really want to get tested. I was in a US hotspot and I think the only reason I could get myself tested was because I told the coronavirus hotline, I just came back from the US. 
And they're like, okay, sure. And this was, they just opened it to travelers. But anything else, it would have been a headache to get tested. And it was the only time I could leave my apartment during quarantine was to go straight to testing. Needed a friend to get me there because it was a drive-through, but I can't drive. Thankfully, a friend who was a nurse helped and she fitted her car out and got me there, got me back negative, thankfully. But yeah, this was during the time where it was still kind of discouraged to go get masks and go get tested. And we're talking, you know, the rhetoric was more about stay home if you can and just quarantine it out, like unless you get really, really sick. And sometimes I wonder what would happen if we actually pushed for more masks and more accessible testing way earlier. Like, would we have gotten the massive outbreak in the middle of the year? Could if we have like gotten on top of this way earlier if you we weren't so scared of stuff Asia figured out Wuhan and all the other Asian places figured out test everyone make it super easy everyone wear a mask and I think they got it under control better than we did but you know it's, you can't change the past now we've just got to learn from what we've had to go through I think knowing what I do now I probably would not have gone to the US if I had known how much of a hassle it would have been. Like, I loved the tour. The tour was great. Admired the work of Sister Spit for a very long time. So being on the tour was a big career goal and a big bucket list item for me. But if I had realized just how things would have escalated, especially in terms of a lockdown, I was very traumatized from the quarantine. I didn't wasn't sure if I could get mental health care or not because at the time, it was unsure whether I was allowed to get care or not or whether it would break quarantine me. I couldn't leave my front door except for that one time I got tested. I couldn't leave my front door at all. And I was always under threat of oh, what if the cops check up on me and make some excuses or whatever. And then the multiple lockdowns that happened after triggered me back to that spot. I hadn't even really recovered from being detained at Los Angeles airport just two weeks before quarantine, right? So if I had realized just how often I would end up being locked up for one reason or another, I probably wouldn't have gone. I probably would have said to Sister Sweet, hey, can you hold my spot for me? And then maybe when things calm down a bit, I can come by for a future tour. But at the time, I thought people were having it a little bit under control and things would be less hectic. Like, I certainly wasn't expecting to be detained at the airport, <laughs> let alone everything else that was happening. I mean, I've already been really affected by this experience of just being locked up you know being detained at Los Angeles airport it was two hours and it was in the offices I don't want to give the impression I was in jail or whatever you know it was still like intimidating because you don't know what the immigration agents are going to say like you know how I get interrogated you don't know how they're going to react afterwards like will I get deported will I get locked up for real suddenly being forced to do spoken word and like not knowing what for and then coming back to quarantine where I couldn't leave my front door the only reason I got food was that a couple of friends had gone to my apartment before I arrived to stock my pantry and my fridge up. The persistent fear of basically the cops are going to come after me if I so much as do something wrong. If someone decided to dob me in, anyone could call the police and say like so-and-so is having an illegal gathering in their house or whatever. Police aren't going to like check to see if that's, they're going to barge through the door. And I was always in fear of that happening. And then I was having a mental breakdown, but I couldn't figure out whether if I needed, say, a cat team to come, were they allowed to come or would they be breaking quarantine? No one really had a good answer. The closest I got was maybe, but maybe it's not good enough, you know? And I was struck by if the worst happened to me, no one can come get me because they might be breaking the law. And the whole year, I felt like people like me who were 
who have mental health issues, who live alone, whose support mainly came from friends rather than, say, like a spouse or like a paid entity or whatever. We were acceptable sacrifices. Even when I spoke up about how alienating and how traumatizing it was, so many people were like, but the virus is worse, though. And there were so many people I knew who were normally would be anti-policing suddenly were like, yeah, put all the police. Any amount of policing is good if it stops the virus. And that was very alarming to me, you know. When the lockdown happened at the migrant housing area, that housing block, they went through a quarantine very similar to mine, but they had more cops. I was immediately sent back. My experience, I felt thrown back there. And then... And I'd only just managed to recover a little bit from my experience being in quarantine myself before all this went down. Like I was just starting to build myself back up. And then this happened. And then stage three lockdown got announced. It was suddenly back to here again. I was like, oh my God, this still has not changed. I tried to call for a cat team because I was feeling suicidal between stage three lockdown because I was like, I can't stay alone. I need to be somewhere else. Living alone is not sustainable for me. And people had recommended accommodation for mental health support that's halfway between home living and a mental hospital. So either you can go from the community app, but you don't have to go to a mental hospital or you're getting discharged from a mental hospital in your nutrition. So I called a CAT team and a CAT team was not available. They were like, we can't help you. But that's when I heard about the park system. And so called up, there was so much paperwork to get through the park system, you know, had to ask a GP to write a referral. And then like, the only thing they could tell me to do was go for a walk. That was their advice for being suicidal was, why don't you go for a walk? I was like, fuck off. Around that time, actually, I managed to find a couple of friends who were willing to bend the law to let me stay with them for a little bit. One friend in particular, let me stay with her for what ended up being like a couple of months. But I tried to do what the legally right thing, I guess, was. But... It failed me. Got a GP letter affirming that I do need to live with someone else for my own safety. And this is gave the address of my friend. But I was still terrified the whole time I was at my friend's house that if the cops come around, they're not going to believe my letter because my ID gives the addresses further away. They're going to think I'm faking it. You know, like, oh, they will attack first, ask questions later. I got agoraphobic during that time because... Every time this felt like, oh my God, they're going to nab me or something. And the fact that the system was set up where people like me trying to find help was criminalized, that has not sat right with me and still doesn't. And I have not seen any movement towards recognizing that. People have started to recognize that how messed up it is. And I'm a little bit bitter because I was like, where were you in March when I was calling all of this out for the first time? It feels like the way... The authorities, the government have gone around managing lockdown has been very policing first and especially criminalizing community support. Like the rhetoric that has been around so far has been, oh, you only want friends around for cheeky beers, right? It's never your friends are probably your lifesaver. I don't know how I'd be alive without my friends. They were my main source of support this entire time. I don't know how I'd be alive without them. Because like official sources were not available to me. No one was taking admissions due to COVID, right? Spaces would have been limited, all of that stuff, all of this paper. I can't, can't wait weeks when my life is on the line right this second. At the same time, also, some people were afraid to help me because, oh, I might bring the cops to my door. 
sometimes I feel like I as as terrible as the U.S. has been handling the lockdown. Part of me kind of wishes I was back in San Francisco because when their shelter in place was put on in San Francisco when I was there, one of the things they explicitly said was you are allowed to help your family and friends. That wasn't explicitly said in the lockdown. You have a thing about caregiving, but it's oh, compassionate reasons, but it's not very clearly defined here and leads to a lot of confusion. And you're also hoping the police will give you lenience, which they haven't been. Whereas in the US, at least in the Bay Area, they explicitly said this was okay. And part of me wishes if I was going to be stuck in the US, at least in that city, I could have gotten some help without feeling like a criminal. So yeah, it's going to stay with me. I've moved to a different place. Now I'm still living alone. On the one hand, if when we had the five-day lockdown, it was right as I was moving. So it's just like, really, you couldn't pick a different date to do a lockdown. And I managed to move anyway, but you know, I had to do a lot of it myself because of lockdown. And again, it was the whole like, uh, friends are still morally dubious like they only started the single social buddy thing way late into the last lockdown it's gonna stay with me on the one hand i feel like i might have worked past all my frustrations with the lockdown that it might not really affect me anymore because i'm just kind of over it at one point but at the same time like who knows what will happen if there is another lockdown if nothing we learned from the last few lockdowns have been put in place like if there's still not enough support given if someone like me is in a situation where they can't leave alone what do they do if they haven't figured that out we're just going to have the same issues of people like us who fall through the cracks trying to do the right thing but also feeling like we are suddenly seen as potential infection vectors and not people that need help like our needs are less important because oh no what if you have the virus and many thanks to Tiara for sharing that difficult story. But let's end on a high with a story of a good day. A couple of years ago, I organized and ran a surprise first day cabaret party for a dear friend and local community legend and deaf cabaret artist Mama Alto. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, honestly. She was going through a hard time. 2019, I had this idea on the road. It's so awesome. I just want to like show that we appreciate her. And a lot of people immediately said yes. Here's Han Hyenas, which is you know, her favorite venue. They immediately offered their venue for free. Maud Davey, who was my mentor for previous Midsummer project, she agreed to help. And all of these people signed up. And when Mama fundraises for something, her usual thing to do is to do a cabaret where she invites everyone she knows to put on a show, right? And she actually had done one for me when I was trying to fundraise for Queer Lady Magician and I was running into walls trying to get funding. And she organized this fundraising cabaret for me. And I was so touched by it. And so I thought, hey, why don't we do like a cabaret for Mama, right? So all of these people signed up to perform something for her and very quickly came together. And one other thing I did was that I went through her website, went through her portfolio and made a list of every organization, every festival, every artist, every sort of notable person she's worked with. Anything from like Midsummer to Adelaide Fringe to some venue somewhere, you know, just made a big list including a couple of people she was close to. Like there is an academic in, I believe in Melbourne. I forgot her name, but she, this academic had written, had done some work around torch songs and the diva and which was work that was very important to Mama. So I reached out to her as well or 
one of Mama's best friends who had moved Queensland, all of these people, I made a list. And I said, hey, we're doing a thing for Mama's birthday. Do you want to come? You, you get your invited to the party. If you can't come, if you want to send in a card or in a present or something, you can send it to email to me or you can send it to Hez. And I think 75% or maybe more of the people I reached out to were so supportive. They were like, yes, we love Mama. We'll send something over or we'll come or we'll send a message, you know. So you we were keeping this a secret, right? And I remember, because it was, we said it sort of a couple days after Mama's actual birthday. And so everyone, including her partner, was in the loop except her. And I think her parents were in the loop as well, like, but she had no clue. I made sure she was available. I was like, you make sure she doesn't book anything on this day because she tends to triple book herself. For her actual birthday, a bunch of us met up at her favorite restaurant in Southside, casual tea party. All of us in the room were just like trying so hard to not reveal the secret to her. You know, and just like, oh, does she, does she know, does she not know? Just like holding on to this. And at one point, someone was supposed to do photography, but she got sick. So we were out the photographer. I'm like, oh, no. But I reached out to these two people that were doing like a queer videography project. Could you by any chance help? Do you know? And they were like, yeah, we'll film the whole thing for free. Like another friend also donated photography. We had a cake organized because mama has a very strict diet. And so we made sure to get a cake she could eat. And then we got to Hez on the day. I am going a bit bonkers the day before because I had to change the set list three times and also have not enough brain cells. I was like, Maud, can you please take over because I have no more brain. And so she was happy to take over. And so put this all together. I rewrote the song for mama to perform. We get to Hez, we spend the day setting it up, and then the evening starts. We organize all these video messages people sending, you know, we're all just like, ah! And then get to the evening, all of us are waiting at Hez, holding the cake. I'm just hanging out my phone, just waiting for, like, the signal from Mama's partner, Michael, to, like, let us know they're on the way. And then we're here. It's like, we're here! Ah! Oh, no, they're here, they're here, they're here, everyone's there. And then... Open the door, Mama walks in, everyone sings, and she actually really had no clue. She had no clue it was gonna happen. Oh my god, this is for you. You've all done so much for us, this is for you. And it was like two hours of people just sharing their love for Mama, like long or through storytelling or through whatever, sharing the video messages. And I actually didn't realize how many people had actually sent stuff to Hez. But we got this table full of presents from all the people I contacted who'd send cards and presents. And another thing we did was that Melbourne Trade was doing a fundraiser for their new venue at Trades Hall. And it was one of the things where it's, ah, you know, if you pay this much, you can like dedicate a microphone or a chair or a something and we'll mention you in the announcements or whatever, right? So we fundraised to get a microphone for Mama. It's like, this is on, the, on behalf of Mama Alto. And so we presented the microphone to her. And what I got to represent the microphone was this air freshener microphone that I got from like a dollar store somewhere. It's like a very janky gold air freshener. And she thought I was giving her the air freshener. But she was excited because she got this story about how she was in a taxi or an Uber on a festival, I think in Brisbane. And that car had that same air freshener microphone thing. And she wanted it so bad, but the driver wouldn't give it to her. And now somehow I fished it out and gave her the exact same. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a miracle. But yeah, she was so appreciative. And like the whole night when I wasn't on stage or running around, I just watched her. Not even so much the stage. I just watched her and just her face. She was so happy. And then we had dinner afterwards and she just for weeks afterwards would not stop talking about how happy she was. And that 
that was the most gratifying experience of my life. Just being able to make someone that happy to show that much love. That was that was probably one of the best things I've ever done. If anyone has any ideas for how I could be a professional fairy godmother, please get in touch with me because I love this. I could happily do this for the rest of my life. It's so good. Thanks so much for joining us on our first ever episode of Best Day, Worst Day. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back again next time with more tales of best days and worst days from the LGBTIQA plus community.